You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast, a podcast where we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice and what a first century Jewish prophet of the poor from Galilee offers us today in our work of love, compassion, and justice. To support this podcast, go to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and click Donate. Today, our strongman could be capitalism, could be white supremacy, Christian nationalism, cis-heterosexism, and more. All of these working separately and together, they comprise the strongman that we have to bind in our time. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Jesus for Everyone podcast. My name is Herb Montgomery, and this is episode 373. Our title this week is Binding the Strongman, and our reading this week is from the Gospel of Mark. This is Mark 3, 20 through 35. And the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying he has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then, indeed, the house can be plundered. Truly, I tell you, People will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, He has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came, standing outside, and they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers. And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So most scholars agree that this section of Mark is a compilation of sayings that were originally separate and and were compiled into this compelling narrative. And this week, we're going to review that narrative, and we're going to look for anything in it that can speak um, to our justice work today. In the story, Jesus has returned home, and he is again Uh, surrounded almost immediately by controversy. Characteristic of Mark and Mark's gospel, uh, this Beelzebub narrative, it's enveloped by a larger story. In other words, Mark begins with one story, he interrupts it with a related story, and then he returns to the first story he was telling. So our narrative then, it begins with Jesus's family and kinship systems in Jesus's day. um, They established a person's identity, their vocation, how they earned a livelihood, um, and their social location. Some scholars see in the story here 
evidence of a power struggle in the early church between those who who claimed leadership position based on being related to Jesus, like Jesus's brother James, and those who were not related to Jesus but followed Jesus just as much with just as much dedication. So, so this story describes this second group of unrelated followers and and the crowd. They were the ones that are in the story. They're inside the home with Jesus's blood family outside. And and while this may indeed be a story about blood relationships, there's also a deeper point that's being made here. Social change often involves questioning the values and the social domestication that one has received from one's family. And outgrowing these values is often part of the work that we must do to participate in making our world a safe and equitable home for everyone. We we can build on the good that we gained from our families, but we also need to be willing to evolve beyond that which was harmful that we gained from our families. And speaking out when one's extended family is aligned with the opposition is extremely difficult for many. And I know this personally. For me, family rejection was especially painful. Um, It was a painful addition to the rejection that I was already experiencing as I chose to to take definitive stands for those communities that I witnessed being harmed. Jesus' family motive in this story, again, it could be uh, preserving the family, like self-preservation, as well as preserving Jesus. And Jesus was beginning to cause trouble, and perhaps he's going to get himself in, in even more trouble and possibly drag them into it too. And if that was their motive, Jesus' family in the story is too late. The government officials, the scribes, are already on their way to Jesus to press charges. And our story highlights, I think the the deeper point here being highlighted is is how one's family and the state can work together to keep one subordinated to the status quo. So when the temple state officials do arrive, they they make their accusation. Jesus is casting out demons, not by the power of God, but by the power of the head demon himself. And this language I know can be difficult for many people within our modern worldview. But I want you this week to step back into that first century context of the story and try to understand it better. Hollenbach tells us, and this is in his his book, Jesus, Demoniacs, and Public Authorities, a Socio-Historical Study. This is page 577. He writes, witchcraft accusations represent a distancing strategy which seeks to discredit, sever, and deny. Upstart controllers of spirits are by their very power over spirits suspected of causing what they cure. I think the way that that men that are that were threatened by strong women, how they have historically marginalized or silenced and removed, even murdered those women by accusing them of witchcraft, uh, um, those stories give us insight into the dynamics of this story in Mark. The 
these are not just stories of mythical demons and mythical exorcisms. Uh, that shallow understanding misses the broader point. These stories are political. And as Thiessen correctly states, the mythological events here reflect political ones. That's Gerd Thiessen, the first followers of Jesus, a sociological analysis of early of the earliest Christianity, page 76. So those benefiting from the status quo in these stories, they were threatened by Jesus's calls for change. And what we see in this story is their efforts to try and delegitimize him, to create fear of Jesus in those who are following him. And this theme of leaders accusing Jesus of being out of his mind or under the control of demons, it's in each of the Gospels, including the latest one we have in the canon, which is the Gospel of John. In John 10, 19 through 21, it says, again, the Judeans were divided because of these words. Many of them were saying he has a demon and he's out of his mind. Why listen to him? Others were saying these are not the words of one who has a demon. How can a demon open the eyes of the blind? In American society today, I think this same distancing tactic is still used. It's not necessarily used with the labels of demon possession and all that supernatural stuff, but but it's still used. Some Christian communities still use this language towards those they politically oppose. I mean, think of a local Baptist pastor here in Lewisburg who accused me of being demon-possessed because of my affirmation of LGBTQ folks. So I don't want to say it's not used, but, but, but that language is not used. But even when that language is not used, I think we need to see the same principle being practiced. Other labels are being used that that just as equally, just like they delegitimized, they were attempting to delegitimize Jesus in his social context. These labels delegitimize folks in our society today. Labels like terrorist. I know they called uh, a black, my Black Lives Matter friends uh, terrorists uh, over the last few years. Or when someone who's looking for working for social equity, they call them a socialist. Or or when those on the right call someone a communist. Those labels are meant to inspire fear uh, uh, in those who who don't really know what the real definition of those terms even is to begin with. In our story, Jesus is engaged in acts of liberation, rehumanization, and in, in Jewish language, acts of jubilee. Yet those who are threatened by his liberation work, they're working to have him dismissed as a lunatic or a or even a traitor to his Jewish community. I'm reminded of the warning of Malcolm X centuries after Jesus, who, who uh, this is uh, written in Malcolm X Speaks, Selected Speeches and Statements, page 93, where Malcolm said, if you're not careful, the newspapers will have you hating the people who are being oppressed and loving the people who are doing the oppressing. And the statement in our passage that arrests my attention the most this week is th that one where it says, truly I tell you, people will be forgiven their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they had said he has an unclean spirit. That's that same dynamic of hating the people who are being oppressed, seeing them as the enemy, and, and, and actually loving those people who are doing the oppressing. In Mark's story, the leader's goal is to make people afraid 
of those that are working for their very liberation. I see this happening all the time here in West Virginia, where, where easily manipulated people in our communities are made to fear those who are actually working for their good. And so the majority constantly vote against their own interests. We witnessed stark examples of this in the last election here in my state. And fearing and demonizing liberators, it's not arbitrarily unpardonable. It's intrinsically unpardonable because the very social elements and changes that would bring a person concrete liberation are made out to be feared and to be held suspect. Um, Segundo speaks in uh, of the intrinsically unpartable nature of this kind of sin in his book capitalism versus socialism this is page 254 he writes the blasphemy resulting from bad apologetics will always be pardonable the real sin against the holy spirit is refusing to recognize with theological joy some concrete liberation that is taking place before one's very eyes it's when we fail to recognize the liberative work of the holy Spirit, and we accuse it as being something negative. Ched Myers also writes in his book, Binding the Strong Man, page 167, to be captive to the way things are, to resist criticism and change, to brutally suppress efforts at humanization, is to be bypassed by the grace of of God. Again, that's page 167. So, there is evidence that many in the early church took uh, this teaching very seriously. In what is believed to have been an early church manual, the, the Didache, um, or the Didache, depending on who's pronouncing it, um, we read, this is chapter 11, and every prophet who speaks in the Spirit, you shall neither try nor judge, for every sin shall be forgiven, but this sin shall not be forgiven. So, so again, they took this passage, what appears to be very seriously. Let's close this week with Jesus' saying in our story, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then, indeed, the house can be plundered. After making this statement, Jesus would later be seen in the story in the temple state's house, so to speak, overturning the tables of economic exploitation and resisting the harming of those um most vulnerable in his society. So, so th- th- that was his society's strongman. Today, our strongman could be capitalism, could be white supremacy, Christian nationalism, cis-heterosexism, and more. All of these working separately and together, they comprise the strongman that we have to bind in our time. What does binding the strong man as a thief in the night, what does it look like for us in our system? What does it look like in the context of working towards justice and compassion and safety for for all who are marginalized and made vulnerable? What does it look like and how should we go about doing it? The answers to these questions will only result from conversations and engagement with the communities that that, uh, are most harmfully impacted by our status quo. And as followers of Jesus, uh, especially the Jesus in our story this week, uh, we have to be about that work. So let's get to it. Heart Group application this week. Share something that spoke to you from this week's e-site or podcast episode with your heart group. Number two, what are some strong men that need dismantling both within our religious and our secular communities? How are false labels used and applied to oppose this work and to create fear in others? And how have you experienced this in your own journey? Share 
share some of that with your group. And then number three, what can you do this week, big or small, to continue setting in motion the work of shaping our world into a safe, compassionate, just home for everyone? Thanks for checking in with us today, right where you are. Keep living in love, choosing compassion, taking action, and working towards justice. I love each of you dearly. I'll see you next week.